Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter, I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne and I'm here with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. Hi there Sarah. So this episode brings together interest rates, ethical banking and Christmas. It means we're talking gold, banking sense and more. Do you see what I did there? Oh, that's terrible. Terrible. But, but yes, all the talk has been about the rate rise that didn't happen. And it has all sorts of implications for banks and businesses. Yeah. So today we're focusing on the financial sector in an episode we're calling Are You Banking on a Rate Rise? Yes, Sophie Lundiates, equity analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, is going to take a look at a few key banks in detail, including Lloyd's and HSBC. Hello, Sophie. Hi, Sarah. Yes, Lloyd's, absolutely classic UK name that we all know, but it's really important to remember there's more to a company than its name, though, which we'll find out a bit later. Yes, and we're going to find out more about what it's like operating a bank in such uncertain times with our guest on the programme today, Gareth Griffiths, UK Head of Retail Banking at Triodos Bank in Bristol. Hello there, Gareth. Great to have you on the programme. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, is going to speak to fund manager Andrew Jones from Janus Henderson Investors about the prospects for global financial stocks. Plus, of course, we'll have our quiz. And Susanna's been digging out some gems from the bank vaults. Yes, you are going to have to chip away fat from fiction, Sarah, when it comes to gold, copper and forgeries. So I bet you can't wait. <laughs> can never wait for the quiz. But we're not just going to talk about sensible saving because we're getting to that time of year when suddenly it's all about spending. I can't believe we're already in Black Friday territory. I know. And the latest stats from the ONS show that we didn't wait for Black Friday this year, even at the start of November. We were snapping up Christmas food and presents because of all the worries over the shortage of goods in the shops. I think people really have been taking notice of the warnings And the headlines, because at the start of the month, one in eight adults said they'd already bought festive items they would ordinarily have purchased a bit later in the year, with the most common items purchased or ordered in advance being food. We're already hungry for Christmas, it seems. Consumers are clearly concerned that the coveted presents as well on Christmas lists might be hard to come by, as they've been snapping up toys as well in advance. Now, this buy-early strategy to avoid disappointed faces on Christmas Day, I think is likely to accelerate quite a lot more over the next few weeks, given all the warnings that we've had from retailers that some popular items might be scarce on the shelves or certainly we're going to have a a lot less choice than we're normally used to yeah i mean this research was really interesting so every year i mean we get used to it the same old warnings that you know you must rush out and buy these must-have toys or they'll disappear off the shelves and we kind of learn to take it all with a bit of pinch of salt but this year's different so already people are saying they've not been able to buy some of the things on their sort of everyday weekly shopping list so in the previous two weeks before this research was done around one in six said some specific items weren't available frozen turkeys have been flying out of the deep freeze after Christmas was cancelled last year for so many families. It does seem that many are desperate to avoid a Scrooge-like celebration this year, so they're stocking up now to ensure the table and tree are fully laden with treats. And of course, all these expectations of shortages of goods and warnings of price rises is partly why there was so much expectation that the Bank of England would raise interest rates to put a break on inflation during the last meeting. But it didn't quite happen like that, did it, Sarah? 
No, so in the run-up to the Monetary Policy Committee meeting, a number of members of the committee, including the Governor, Andrew Bailey, they gave really strong hints that a rate rise was on the cards. And it meant that markets started pricing in a rise in November. But when the time came, just nothing materialised. There were some pretty sound reasons for putting things off. So it's mainly that the banks worried about unemployment. So there were over a million people still on furlough when the scheme ended in September. There was a certain level of uncertainty as about how much of that's going to filter through to unemployment. So the bank held off until they got a bit of a clearer picture. Yeah, and it's going to have disappointed though wait and see savers who were really hanging on for better deals after a rate rise. They are now likely to be in for a far longer wait than they expected because even if we do get a rate rise, the high street banks are unlikely to pass it on immediately. I mean, banks have suffered a couple of years of really horribly squeezed margins, haven't they, with rock bottom rates leaving them little room to manoeuvre. So I suppose it's really no surprise that banking shells fell on the back of the Bank of England, choosing to sit on its hands this time around, given the long squeeze on net interest margins they've experienced. It means they're likely to see rate rises as an opportunity to get a bit of breathing space, I think. So I don't think it's likely that they'll raise rates very quickly. What all this means for investors is actually that they must sort of look beyond the portfolio and look at their wider finances. So particularly, it's really the time to start shopping around if you're a saver. So actually, before we had any of this news on the rate rises, in the past six months, we've seen the rates on some competitive short-term fixed accounts double. So it means there's much better deals out there. So if you're getting next to nothing from your high street, it really is worth having a look around and see what's available. And if you have a mortgage, I mean, I suppose there could be a bit of a tendency to sit back and relax, but it's not time, is it, to be too laid back with this area of your finances either? No, no. So there's there's about two million borrowers on variable rates and they need to really consider whether it's worth fixing their rate now. Because banks have already started to increase the rates on these mortgages, but we're still on sort of roughly around historic lows. So it really could be a really decent time to act. It's, it's obviously more difficult if you're locked into a variable rate and you've got to pay a really big fee in order to get out. So you actually have to do the maths in that case and work out whether their switch is going to leave you sort of better off overall. But if you're on a fixed rate with less than six months left to run, you can usually book in a new rate now so that you don't have to wait for your deal to expire to get a better deal. Interesting stuff. So, I mean, the Bank of England did pull the rug on expectations, as we've been discussing, particularly if you're a saver or a borrower. It was a bit unexpected. But what has this been like if you've actually been running a bank, not just banking with a bank? Well, it's time now to bring in Gareth Griffiths, who's UK Head of Retail Banking at Triodos Bank. Gareth, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to talk to us. Tell us, what do you think rising interest rates will mean for the banks? Because we are expecting them to go up at some point in the next few months. What's it going to mean for Triodos? Yeah, sure. And good morning. We had our interest rate preparations already for the last Monetary Policy Committee, and we're very much... Uh, looking forward to the next one on the 16th of December, because as you said, the jobs market data is out this week. So it's going to give us a really interesting first view as to what might happen at the Monetary Policy Committee voting, given the fact that only two members of the MPC voted for a rate increase last time around. I'm sure, as you said, the wait and see army of cash savers will be certainly welcoming any rate rise that might be forthcoming. Whilst at the same time, mortgage borrowing rates have already increased and we're seeing the people on variable rates, some of them starting to really take action. I think there were a couple of points that you pulled out that were really interesting there. 
One is that I'm already seeing banks increasing uh, their mortgage rates now ahead of the rate rise as the market prices in uh, increased swap rates. And ultimately, that is, I guess, banks taking their net interest margin and, and making sure that the last few months of the year are going to be more comfortable. At Triodos, we've certainly made preparations to pass on rates to customers in an orderly fashion. And I guess the kind of call out I would make to the rest of the industry is how quickly that's going to be done by them. Because ultimately, a month, six weeks worth of sitting on the increased interest rate for banks is only upside for them. We really always encourage people to not only look at the rate, but what's behind the rate. Customers are really wanting to use their money more sustainably. Yeah, it's interesting because, as you say, for your customers in particular, it isn't just about the rates, about the whole ethos of the bank. So are you finding that ethical concerns are increasingly important to consumers because you have gained market share, even though people have to pay for a current account, for example, with you? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Our customer base grew 20% in 2020, which is you know a really exciting tick in the box that says moving your money is probably one of the most powerful choices that you can make. It can really drive measurable change, both positive social and environmental change. The challenge, I think, we're now starting to see in the marketplace is that there's lots of different options which are labelled ethical or sustainable. And it's often, I think, really difficult for customers to sift through all the different options and work out what's actually going to deliver the impact that people are hoping for and what's just greenwashed. And I think we need to be really careful as an industry. Financial services has got a real obligation to our customers to really actually make a difference. Ultimately, this term ESG, environmental, social and governance, could be very, very easily uh, used as a kind of a mis-selling tactic. So I really urge consumers to look at independent websites, to really actually look at what sits behind the fund and the interest rate. In terms of this sort of ethical savings label, do you think it would be helpful, for example, if the FCA sort of maybe came out with a definition for what ethical saving actually is? Yeah, I think that's really important. Ultimately, there is an EU taxonomy for investments. And as we get further into the net zero transition, I would absolutely implore the regulator and also the industry itself to make sure that we uphold the highest level of ethical labelling standards. I mean, if you just look a little bit behind things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals, as an example, I'd really encourage the industry also to orientate, say, investment portfolios to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So there's a real clear linkage for consumers as to where their money's going in a transparent way. You talked a little bit about some of these sort of the new green funds and savings products that are out there. I mean, obviously, one of the, the really big ones for the savers is this NSNI green bond. Is it helpful to have that sort of thing out there to sort of make people think a little bit harder about whether or not they want to sort of take the step with their savings? It's a positive step that more green savings have been offered now. And it's, I think, raising the uh, overall consumer awareness. However, I think my disappointment was that the rate in question, particularly on the NSNI bond, does nothing to dispel the myth that you actually have to pay to be ethical in the rate. It's simply not true. If I think back to last year during the height of the pandemic, we really saw ethical and sustainable funds really outperforming their competitors in the, in the benchmark. The point you raised, I think, is absolutely the most important one in that it's imperative that there's a transparent criteria 
on what is actually considered green. I think that's the only way forward to really making sure that consumers have got a valid, transparent choice. And I think, therefore, having a taxonomy in place to unlock the kind of potential of green and ethical savings and investments is really important. So there's an awful lot out there and there's lots happening. But one of the things that we know through our research is how difficult it is to persuade people to switch their savings and that most people just don't get round to switching. Is that a challenge for you? It is. And I think there's still the sort of impending question of, but I can get a, uh, you know, a really good headline rate for one year. And ultimately, I don't know the bank. I don't know where that money's going. And that's clearly quite a significant part of what the Triodos mission and ethos is about, is that all our savers can see entirely where every single penny of their money is going. As we come off the back of COP26, which has been a real moment in time, we know that more consumers are wanting to use their money to make a real difference in the world. But however, clearly the headline rate in a low interest rate environment where rates have been depressed for so long is quite a powerful motivator for many. But I think as we build a net zero transition and really transition our economy towards net zero, you know, I was really heartened the other day with um, with Rishi Sunak's announcements that all financial institutions and listed companies are going to have to publish all of the plans that they've got to transition to net zero. But we are then therefore going to see underneath the bonnet of quite a lot of banks and what they continue to finance and why they are therefore able to pay those top rates. It's it's going to be a really interesting next couple of years. Gareth, doesn't all of this show that in terms of finance as well, it's much more difficult for poorer people to be green? Those people who are wealthy can afford to pay for a current account at Triodos, but a lot of people are struggling right now. Have you got plans to widen your customer base to those people as well? I think that's a really interesting question around what I'd actually call the poverty premium. I think the poverty premium is much less associated with, for example, the £3 per month that we charge for our current account, but actually it extends much further. And if I think about two things, firstly, overdraft rates. And actually, we now see the most predominant overdraft rate on current accounts up at around 39.9%. And that was after a piece of regulation was passed around the high cost of credit and banks being more transparent in the way that they advertise rates and charge for overdraft usage. And the poverty premium extends itself one step further in so much as people with basic bank accounts, potentially poor credit, etc., may not be able to get access to accounts whereby they've got access to standing orders and direct debits. And that increases the poverty premium even further because clearly then people can't pay just the very basics through a regular standing order or direct debit. So again, I'd really encourage people to look a little bit further, understand how they use their products and actually what might benefit them. There's lots of advice on the internet ethical consumer, which, and just to maybe take that research one step further, because headline rate isn't always everything. Increasingly, we're kind of asking people to look a bit deeper into their finances and to do like, the maths on things like the overdraft rate and the, the current account charge, and also then look a bit deeper into where their bank is investing. And I'd be interested to know, do you think that that's a mass market? Do you think that people have the time and the energy for that sort of thing across the board? Or do you think that's something that's going to have to grow over time? I think we've got to make it easier, actually. I think we've got to make it much easier. If I look at the 
kind of raft of consumer websites that are out there. I think they take one big step for helping make it easier for customers. I really do think that there's probably quite a lot of complexity and detail which could be made simpler for customers. But I think as, a, as an industry, it's one of the things that we can help consumers with and be much more transparent and comparable. Okay, Gareth, thank you so much for being with us on Switch Your Money On. It's been really fascinating talking to you. So thank you. I want to bring in Sophie Lund-Yates now, who's a senior equity analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Sophie, really interesting to hear what Gareth has been talking about in terms of rate rises and transparency within the banking industry. Uh, Tell me some of the stocks that you've been looking at, where there have been similar issues being faced. Hi, Susanna. Yes, so obviously we have these kind of bigger trends that are affecting all of the banks one way or another, but that doesn't mean that all of the stories are are the same. But starting with some things that all the banks, all the listed banks do have in common, they've all had results out relatively recently. So there's a couple of common factors um, with the UK banks. First one being that they assumed the absolute worst when the pandemic hit. That meant that they put aside just absolutely enormous sums of money um, as provisions because they were concerned that people wouldn't be able to pay their debts, essentially. But actually what's happened is that the macroeconomic outlook is a lot better than feared. So the banks have been able to release large chunks of those provisions, which is hugely boosted profits, which is obviously great. It means they're all on, you know, slightly better footing than maybe they had feared would be the case. But injections to profit like that are really short term. And it's important to therefore focus on the differences between the banking giants and their longer run investment cases. So I'll start with Lloyd's. Everyone knows Lloyd's. It's a high street staple, which is actually one of the interesting parts of it. It's one of the largest UK bank branch presences. And also it's got less of a fee-based investment banking income. So what I mean by that is some of the other listed names earn a lot more money from big investment bank arms. So they earn money from advising on things like IPOs um, and trading commission, stuff like that. Lloyd's has a lot less of that. So that does mean that the low interest rate environment that we're in at the moment and the lack of a rise um, is even more important because while rates are on the floor, it limits the profitability of its loans. And Lloyd's is a lot more exposed to traditional lending um, than the other banks. Um, The flip side of that is that the increasing likelihood of a rate increase would be even better news for Lloyd's than its rivals um, who have that more varied source of income. Um, and as we've been talking about, you know, at the time of recording, you know, there hasn't been any announcement of a, of a rate increase, which was you know, certainly a surprise. Really for Lloyd's, the main thing that I'll be watching over the coming year is how it handles its vast estate. So there's one thing to say that being one of the last men standing on the high street is that it benefits from rivals closing or is it going to further accelerate its digital strategy? Yes, that'd be really interesting to watch how that plays out. But what about banks which have got less of a UK focus? Really, it would be remiss not to talk about HSBC, which is the UK's biggest listed bank. The majority of its income comes from Asia, though, which means that the fortunes of HSBC and therefore a reasonable chunk of the FTSE are largely tied to foreign shores, which I think is something that sometimes gets a bit forgotten sentiment wise when we're talking about the banking giants. At the moment, the Asian business is actually lagging other areas. So HSBC is picking up the slack from from other regions, but those are the regions that it's actually currently trying to shrink because it hasn't faltered on its plans to focus even more on Asian economies in in the longer term. So that's an interesting dynamic that's going on at the moment that I'm watching quite closely. The other one really to talk about is Barclays. To a lot of people, Barclays brings up images of being a traditional high street staple, maybe a bit like Lloyd's. 
but it actually has an enormous investment bank too. It makes a lot of its money from things like fees when it advises companies on IPOs or commission from big corporate deals. And a lot of people don't realise Barclays was in the running for buying out Lehman Brothers before it collapsed right at the start of the, the financial crisis. So just to give you an idea, it really is a massive global name, not just kind of a frequenter of the UK high street. And having those extra sources of income are really helpful when interest rates are so low. The biggest hurdle to clear now is how quickly and how well the new CEO settles in after the unexpected departure of Jess Staley, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, really interesting to see how that plays out. Sophie, many thanks for all your analysis there. Well, we can hear now from Emma Wall, who's Head of Investment Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. She's been speaking to Andrew Jones, who's a Portfolio Manager from Janice Henderson Investors. Hi, Andy. Hi, Emma. It's good to talk to you today. You too. And we're talking about banks. Now, banks historically have been quite good dividend payers. You, of course, run an income fund, a responsible income fund, no less. You have a couple of banks in the portfolio. Last year was not so great for dividends and banks because the regulator told them to cut the dividend or encouraged them to cut the dividend given the stressed economic backdrop of the lockdown. But dividends are returning, aren't they? Perhaps you could give us a bit more detail about the couple of banks in the portfolio. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, 2020 was obviously an incredibly difficult time for the UK market from an income point of view overall. And specifically, banks did actually have to suspend their dividends last year. The regulator was very understandably very cautious about the effects of the pandemic. But as the year went on and the economic effects turned out to be not quite as serious as first feared, at the end of the year, it did give the banks permission to start paying dividends again. So what we've seen this year is a relatively modest return to dividends from UK banks. But going forward, we would expect to see greater dividends. The stocks that I hold in the portfolio in the sector, Lloyds and NatWest, we think they've got very strong capital positions, which with that improving profitability we'd expect to see, means they're well placed to increase dividends going forward. And we think they're going to be offering yields of around 45 to 5% next year. What about the broader sector then? Because financial services is not just banks, not just high street domestic banks that you have in the portfolio, but it's quite a wide ranging sector, isn't it? What else are are other ways to play this? And how does that kind of feed into the better economic backdrop that we are seeing going into 2022? That's right, Emma. Obviously, um, banks are an important sector for the UK, but we do obviously have a very large insurance sector We have a very vibrant financial services sector. So one company we own in the insurance sector is Aviva, which has got a relatively new chief executive who has taken a long overdue restructuring of the company. So since she's been in charge, she's exited a significant number of businesses, both in Europe and in Asia, and focusing on where they're very strong, which are the core markets of the UK, Ireland and Canada. And generally, economic growth is quite good for insurers. And so what we think will happen is with this improved focus, they'll be able to improve the returns they have. And the great thing about them having sold the businesses overseas is, like Lloyd's and that West, they've got a really strong capital position. So dividends there will pick up next year as well. So it's a really good restructuring story with a favourable backdrop and dividends to resume there as well. 
Now, the adage goes that equity investors are perpetually optimistic and fixed income investors are perpetually pessimistic. But I do feel perhaps we should add a bit of balance because you've just spoken there about three companies for whom the outlook looks more positive because the economic backdrop looks more positive. But it's not smooth sailing for the financial services sector, is it? Because it's not a done deal that the economy is going to grow next year. And indeed, inflation could have a big impact on that. That's absolutely right. Obviously, these are quite macro-sensitive stocks. So what we always try and do in the portfolio is to have a balance. And you want those companies where you're not just beholden to macroeconomic forces. And so Aviva is a good example. We think that restructuring will mean they can do well, even if things don't pan out in a favourable way economically. And similarly, we also own 3i Group in the portfolio, which is an incredibly well-positioned private equity and infrastructure business. And we think whatever the inflation outcome for 3i, they've positioned themselves so well to strategically advantaged sectors such as discount retailer, healthcare and technology. We think they'll be able to carry on growing even in a more difficult environment. So we think it's important with the potential for interest rates to pick up to have some banks in the portfolio. But we also want other drivers of companies as well, which is why we've got restructuring with Aviva and then also better structural growth with 3i Group. And Andy, finally, you are the manager of a responsible investment mandate, which means that there are environmental, social and governance considerations woven into your investment process. How do you marry that mandate, that obligation, that passion indeed, I know for you, with investing in financial services, which for some people is a bit of a sin sector? The fortunate thing about the companies we invest in is a lot of them have actually been thinking about responsible investment for a long time. A company like 3i has a very long-standing responsible investment sector, and it's one of the reasons they've delivered such strong growth. So they've been avoiding a lot of difficult sectors overall. A lot of the companies that we own in that area have actually been thinking about this in a similar way to how we would think about it. And whilst banks historically have obviously had a lot of issues overall, we do think the ones that we own are moving in the right direction. It takes time to work through the legacy issues because they're big, complex organisations. But we think we're only ones that are definitely going in the right direction and have a very, very useful part to play to society and are definitely better placed businesses than they have been historically. Andy, thank you very much. Thank you. Great to speak to you today. Emma Wall there with Andrew Jones, a portfolio manager from Janus Henderson Investors. And we do need to mention that yields are variable and any dividends or growth aren't guaranteed. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. Yeah, I've been swatting up top Bank of England facts, including some of the weirder tales from the vaults some of which are, I'm afraid to say, Sarah, maddeningly difficult. So to start us off, can you tell me, Sarah, which coins are made of copper? You said they're maddeningly difficult, so this seems too easy. But why not? I'll say one and two Ps, they're the coppers. Yes, we'd think so, but only very slightly. Now, they did used to be made mainly of copper, but now they're coated in a tiny fraction of copper, and the rest is steel so it actually means they have less copper in them than the 20 pence piece which is nicely confusing next question delving back into the vaults the bank of england issued war bonds in 1914 to help fund the first world war 
They were claimed to be a runaway success. But what did the Bank of England recently admit about the first sale? Oh, I've no idea. Uh, um, no, no, I've got nothing. Uh, was it was was it all a sham? Um, uh, apologies, they are quite tricky this time. Well, not exactly, but it was a disaster. People didn't buy anywhere near enough of them, but they didn't want to admit it for fear of destroying the market. So they got the chief cashier and his deputy to use bank funds to buy the rest of the bonds in their own name rather than admitting it on the balance sheet. It listed the holdings as other securities, so the bank's researchers only dug this fact out very recently. It was kept secret until then. Now, how many bars of gold does the Bank of England own? Well, I know they own at least one because it's in the Bank of England Museum. And, well, at least before COVID, you, you can actually pick it up. Um, I've been there, my kids are big fans. But there is something very weird about being able to pick something up that's worth about the same as the price of your house. But beyond that one, I couldn't even hazard guess. Well, actually, you're not far off. They actually own two and both of them are in its museum. Maybe they're just uh, switched them around. But they hold 400,000 others on behalf of the Treasury and other organisations. But they don't actually own them. OK, final question. Between 1797 and 1821, a shortage of gold coins meant the bank issued low denomination notes for the first time. There was a boom in forgery, but why were forgers just so successful? These are really difficult questions. I don't know, were they just really easy to copy? Well, certainly they didn't have the same anti-forgery protections as modern notes. But in this case, it was actually because the people receiving the notes had never actually seen them before. So they didn't have anything to compare them to. Lots of them didn't read either, so they weren't able to spot mistakes. It was such a problem that during this period... Over 300 people were actually hanged for forgery, which is a pretty grisly period in the bank's history. That was your hardest quiz so far. So I, I think next time I'm going to set the questions so I can get my revenge. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. It wasn't the most cheery end of the podcast either. But I do promise to have a bit more frivolity next time around. Oh, no, I'm off to dig out some hideously obscure facts that you will never guess. Before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 15th of November and all information was true at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice, so you should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value, so you could get back less than you invest. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealings. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Gareth, Sophie, Emma and Andrew and our producer, of course, Elizabeth Hodson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. And if you enjoy this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye. <laughs>